Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. And we've got a memoir theme to this week's show. Our featured guest today is Lucy Lewis talking about her memoir, Lighting the Fuse, reflections on her time in the army and becoming the UK's first female bomb disposal expert. We'll also hear from sister Gemma Simmons. She's chatting to us about life as a nun and her book, Dancing at the Still Point, Retreat Practices for a Busy Life. And Nicholas Royal discusses White Spines, Confessions of a Book Collector, his mix of memoir and narrative non-fiction about his love for books published by Picador. Lucy, first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. We'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. And we're going to be talking to you about army life. But as I said, this programme does have a local slant. And you're a university marshal, are you not, for Cambridge University? I am, yes, yes. Uh, What does that entail? It's a sort of 400-year-old post. First Marshal was appointed on the 7th of December, 1620. And my main role is to lead the university constabulary. Uh, We're one of the oldest constabularies in the world. We have sort of 26 constables. And whilst the role is mostly ceremonial, we do all the Cambridge uh, graduations and honorary degrees and things, we also have a reactive role to um, help support the proctors with um, freedom of speech, protecting the freedom of speech. And you're the first woman in that post? Yes, yes, I am. Did your army experience, has that come in useful dealing with soldiers? Has that come in useful dealing with students? It's definitely come in useful. A great deal of patience is needed and some sort of interpersonal skills to try and convince the students to maintain good order. And also the hanging around, wearing uniform, carrying an out-of-date weapon. All of these things <laughs> I have done in the army. So, so yes, there's a lot of parallels, really. And we're going to have your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you? It is. I listen to it most of the day when I'm not actually engaged in something particular. It was slightly less so in the, in the army because it's quite hard to play music, or at least it was back then. So those tracks that I recall are very important to me. And we're going to start now with Toya, I Want to Be Free. Why this one? It came out when I was 17 and Toya was very different from the music makers of the time. And she sings that, you know, don't want to go to school, don't want to follow the rules, I just want to be free. And that's exactly how I felt at 17. I didn't want to to stay on further at school and just follow the normal path. I just wanted to do something different. And that's Toya, I Want to Be Free, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Lucy Lewis. Lucy trained at the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, the beginning of an army career that saw her serve with the Royal Military Police in Germany and Northern Ireland. She'd reached the rank of major when she left the army in 1998 to start a family. Her career-defining moment, though, came in 1989 when she became the first woman to operate as a bomb disposal officer with the Royal Engineers. Her memoir, Lighting the Fuse, details her training, her life in the military as a woman and handling the challenges posed by life or death situations. And it's very enjoyable indeed. We're going to talk about bomb disposal, of course, uh, Lucy, but let's sort of rewind a little bit first. Why the army? 
at the time, I was a security officer at Stansted Airport and I kept trying to be promoted and I kept being trumped by everyone who had got army experience, supervisory experience or police experience. And I thought, I'm never going to get those unless I do something. So I thought, if I joined a TA in the military police as an officer, I'd have all of that experience in the first weekend and that would then get my ticket to promotion. But because the army is the army, they put me in the Corps of Transport. So I ended up at Luton doing what I was doing at Stansted. But I did my first weekend and I absolutely loved it and thought this is the world for me. So I had never intended to join the army. It was a spur of the moment thing, but I loved every minute. What did you love about it? I loved the fact that I'm amongst a group of like-minded people and that we're busy from six in the morning till sort of 11 at night, all with a, a sense of purpose. And working shift work and living in a small village, I was quite lonely and bored, I think. And all of a sudden, this was a whole new world of active and like-minded people. It was just so exciting and fulfilling. Yes, it was wonderful. And going from the army to bomb disposal, I mean, in the end, that, that was pretty random, really, wasn't it? Oh, completely. I didn't volunteer for it. I was voluntold. They just sort of went round the room and said, right, you're off here, you're off there. And they asked me, have you got a steady hand? And I said, no, no. I said, I've got malaria. You know that. I've been off sick all week. And they went, oh, yes. Never mind about that. You're off to be a bomb disposal officer. And that was it. And it slowly dawned on me that as I've discovered that I would be the first woman to operate rather than just pass the course. And then I got very excited about it. No, I was very excited. By the time I I got to start, I was uh, thrilled about it. Well, some people wouldn't have been. They'd have thought, oh, goodness me, this is a dangerous occupation. Yeah, they would have done. But at Sandhurst, we had taught how to teach. And I did a teaching practice on how to smuggle bits of bombs through airport scanners, because that's what I've been looking for on the scanners all these years. So obviously, you know, when it came to finding someone to do it, they obviously knew I wasn't put off by finding a detonator or something like that. And, and I would be interested in it. So so they weren't, it wasn't entirely random. And this is in 1989. So paint a picture for us, Lucy, as to what life was like for women in particular in the army in 1989. Well, when I joined Sandhurst, women were only allowed to do jobs that would not be done by a man in war. We were allowed to carry weapons, but only for self-defence. We weren't allowed to be in any of the combat side of the army. We were in administrative support roles only. We had to leave if we had children, if we became pregnant. 16 weeks and you're out. It was the fastest way out of the army. And we were very restricted on where we could serve and what we could do. But while I was at Sandhurst, they changed the rules and they allowed for the wider employment of women. So they allowed us then to fly helicopters, so long as there wasn't a gun on the helicopter, so small recce helicopters only. And they allowed us to to be a bomb disposal officer because that does not engage with the enemy, which was what we weren't then allowed to do. So bomb disposal sort of fitted the bill of doing more than just paperwork, but not actually carrying a gun or engaging with the enemy. And what about the attitudes then? They were quite, shall we say, unwoke, I think is probably (laughs) the word. There There was some quite basic attitudes. But it varied very much with what part of the army you were in. Some parts of the army, like the military police, had worked with women alongside women all the time since the war. And there was no question of of the benefits and the attributes that women could bring to the forces. Whereas other parts of the army, they didn't really see women apart from in the office or the dentist or something. They didn't really, they weren't part of their daily life. And so they don't really kind of understand what we can do, what we're capable of. They certainly didn't train with alongside women. The rules were very different as to what we wore and what we could do. So it's not surprising that there were some quite primitive attitudes at the time. Yes, I was going to ask where that attitude came from and where the discrepancies came from. Was it just simple negligence? Was it misogyny? Was it active discrimination? Was it just forgetfulness? Or I think a lot of it was tradition. 
The language that they use, that all soldiers are male, and therefore it's a very male, testosterone-filled world, it wasn't a very welcoming environment for women at all. We were okay, provided we just did the, you know, sorted out the post and, you know, did the paperwork. That was fine in the office. But we were expected to wear skirts all the time and stick to what we did and not get in the way of what the men were doing. So what was it like living and working in that environment? How did that make you feel? At Sandhurst, it was... It was quite good, actually, at Sandhurst in particular, because the staff were very keen to make sure that we got the best training that we could and that we were treated fairly. And we did work alongside some male cadets, but they were graduate male cadets, and therefore they had been used to being alongside women. They'd studied alongside us, and they saw that we were doing the same training as them by and large. We did the same log runs. They did longer exercises and and did shooting qualifications whilst we learnt more paperwork. But there was a mutual respect there. Whereas those men that had no contact with women at all in the forces, those were the ones with the hardest ingrained attitudes. And as you rose up the ranks, you became in charge of men. So how did that work out? Yes, as, as soon as I was commissioned, I, I was in, suddenly found myself in charge of 26 uh, sappers, Royal Engineers. And I was helped by the fact that all of them were second tour soldiers. So none of them were fresh to the army. They'd all served somewhere else first. And they all understood that in bomb disposal, you can either do it or you can't. And there's a mutual respect for all those that actually can do it. So I was given the benefit of the doubt until I started my course. And once I'd passed the course, then I was accepted as one of them because I I could actually go out there and do what they did. So there wasn't a question. But I did feel for the first couple of months that I was riding on the coattails of other people, really, while I was being given the benefit of the doubt. And being the first female bomb disposal expert, I mean, fantastic, but you say the pressure that you were under to get it right because you were so conspicuous. Well, it is a double-edged sword being first and being conspicuous. In some cases, if you get things right, they get spotted by other people and recognised. So you get the credit for when things go well, but the slightest mistake and you can be completely damned for it because there's no hiding a mistake and everyone remembers it. So, yes, there's a lot of pressure and particularly you know that women coming behind you will be judged on your standard and if you mess it up, they might not even get the chance to do it for themselves. So it all rests with you. If you do have a bad tour or or it's unsuccessful in any way, then everyone will think, well, that was an interesting experiment but we'll not do it again. So it was very much you had to get it right every time. And this is, of course, pressure that men are not subjected to because there are so many more of them. Absolutely. They're under no personal pressure at all, other than this, the idea they have a reputation to uphold and their own personal pride, which we all had anyway. But they had no idea, no pressure that, you know, all of the women were looking to you to, to get it right. Otherwise, we can't go forwards. The first sort of three people from my team at Sandhurst that came out into first roles, first female helicopter pilot, for example, we felt were under tremendous pressure. We were experiments. We were the guinea pigs. And it's not just the eyes of the rest of the army, but all the women were looking to us to get it right so that they could, we could then expand and move on. So there was intense pressure. That first tour was, was, was very stressful. Well, we're going to hear from uh, Sister Gemma Simmons in just a moment about retreating, finding peace and quietness, which I'm guessing when you're in the army is equally important. How did you do that? Do you have a special place you go to or practices, meditation? Well, I like walking and I always have liked walking. So I find I find sort of solace in walking. And you do quite a lot of it in the army because you never live quite near to where you're actually going to be and there's very restrictive forms of transport. So I do a little walking. And yet you too, you can find some time to yourself and you have to learn to shut yourself off from your environment because you can be in a different place every day. So you can't rely on physical things around you for your comfort. You have to find it within. 
Thank you, Lucy. We'll come back to you in just a moment. But let's hear now from Gemma Simmons. Gemma is a sister of the Congregation of Jesus. She's worked as a chaplain at Cambridge University, the University of London and Holloway Prison. She's director of the Religious Life Institute and president of the Catholic Theologian Association of Great Britain. Her book, Dancing at the Still Point, Retreat Practices for a Busy Life, published earlier this year, is a guide to finding calmness and stillness and moments for reflection. When I spoke to Sister Gemma at her convent in Cambridge, I asked her to explain the title of the book, Dancing at the Still Point. There's a poem by T.S. Eliot that says, At the Still Point, Dancing. The subtitle of the book is Retreat Practices for Busy Lives. It's a book written for people of faith, but also people who are spiritual explorers without having any specific faith, who just want to have a little bit of reflectiveness in their lives, who want to get off the hamster wheel and live more thoughtfully and reflectively. But I don't want that to be heavy duty, people thinking they have to kind of go all solemn and disappear into a cathedral or find themselves a cloister somewhere. This is something for stuff you can do at home, walking the dog, looking out of your window. So dancing at the still point, I wanted the dancing to be about being fully alive, coming alive. But it's also about the desire for stillness that many people have. So this isn't just about going somewhere. This is about finding it in yourself. Can you have a retreat in a busy environment or does it need to be still? I think there does need to be stillness. And for me, that would mean there would have to be a certain amount of physical if not stillness, at least centeredness. I think you can be very centered walking your dog or going for a walk or going for a swim. I swim in the river here in, in Cambridge quite regularly and I find it an incredibly centering thing to do, even though I'm moving. What we're talking about is helping people to cut out from the background, the white noise that most of us live with in our heads so much of the time. And the kind of noise that is debilitating, that is that sucks the energy out of you, you know. And so it's about withdrawing from whatever it is that is taking your energy away. And that's quite hard to do these days, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's almost impossible. And everybody always thinks nuns live a really quiet life. And it's just as much bedlam here, actually. My kind of bedlam is probably a rather different kind of bedlam than parents with small kids or people working in a noisy office. But it's bedlam all the same. I find myself reflecting on, you know, what has helped me, but also what seems to be helping the people who come to me and talk about their desire for a deeper inner life. And does this dovetail with things like mindfulness and meditation? It really does, yes. I slightly laugh at the whole mindfulness industry. I don't mean laugh at it in the sense of mocking it, but there are so many courses and books and materials now that people are being invited to pay for or to sign up for. And I think, gosh, the Christian church has been doing this for free for the last 2,000 years. (laughs) It's just we're not very good at selling ourselves. So I wanted to write a book that people could get hold of and think, Actually, this desire for a more centred, a more spiritual life is something that is part of a very long tradition. In Christianity, of course, it's also connected with finding the person of God and therefore in the stillness, finding a companion. And that's a very particular thing. But I think a lot of what the book writes about would work even for people who don't have that particular faith perspective. 
So how is the book structured? What does it contain? Okay, so it's fairly short chapters and each chapter has a couple of reflection questions at the end and some suggestions for practice. So if somebody were thinking, well, I've never been on a retreat before, I don't even know what a retreat is, and I certainly wouldn't want to sign up for going off to a retreat house where everybody's being quiet, I'd like to try it on my own first. Then there's the possibility to do that but it invites people into very genuine and tried and tested exercises for being more reflective. There is a chapter on connecting with our own body. I think I've called it an inside the body experience. You know, people are always talking about having an outside the body experience. But I think many of us, because we're so busy, we've become disconnected from our own body, from our own senses. And even just doing a thing like sitting and holding an apple for 10 minutes and smelling it and touching it and eventually biting into it and really tasting it, really savouring it. It's a complete revelation for some people. We don't even notice the taste of what we're eating. So just becoming a bit more reflective about our senses, our sight, our hearing, truly listening to a piece of music, not just as background wallpaper to our lives, but actually engaging it so that we allow it to touch us and maybe to bring up memories or to bring up feelings that we've just not engaged with. Really listening, that is a spiritual exercise. Do you think this is something we grow out of? Because children seem to live very much in the moment and they do those things of, you know, eating a, it might be an ice cream, but really savouring oh, and it. And rubbing it all over their faces. I've got twin um, three-year-old great niece and nephew and most of the ice cream seems to actually go on their face <laughs> and then they spend quite a bit of time licking it off you know they live in the moment and they really live the experience as adults we just get very used to multitasking well certainly female adults do you know we're always planning what's coming next or reflecting back on what's just happened and therefore we lose this capacity and, and there are many reasons why Jesus said unless you become like little children you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven but I actually do think that part of that was about him trying to remind us that living in the moment is a very rich way of being human. And this is a book not just for Christians this is for people who may have no faith. Absolutely or, um, it is atheist. it is for people I think who want to become more reflective who feel themselves to be on a reflective or on a spiritual journey without necessarily that journey having any faith labels on it as such. I mean, I keep meeting people outside a church context who say, I'm just so tired. And when you get to talk to them, they're saying, I just feel so disconnected and I want to reconnect. I want somehow to come home to myself. And that's what this book is about. Um, I'm interviewing you here in the convent. It doesn't look like a convent at all. It's um, <laughs> on Brookside near central Cambridge. You're not wearing a nun's habit. So is this something about us perhaps reviewing, in the literal sense, how we see the church? I think what it is is saying, look, there is a tradition here of people who have learned to be reflective, who have thought very deeply about their relationship to possessions, their relationship to relationships, their relationship to society. And there's some real riches here to be delved into and to be shared with people who may not be coming from the same starting point, but who are actually looking at the same goals, which is to live a richer life 
and actually to live a life that is less punitive. The current pace of life for many people is very punishing. Although this isn't a convent in the sense of monastic cloisters and the like, my order, we have been living this kind of a life. We were founded in 1609, so it goes back away. We've been working in women's education since the beginning and our sisters across the world. We've got people running AIDS clinics. We've got people trying to educate girls in Sudan with gunfire, sh you know, shooting in the background. We've got sisters working in slums in, in major cities in the global south. These are people doing these high pressure jobs from a place of a quiet centre, from a place where actually they are resourcing themselves for the very difficult things that they're doing. So I suppose we feel we've got something to offer people who maybe are living high pressure lives either professionally or perhaps personally, trying to keep a family going, kids. I don't know how parents recently in, in the lockdown have managed when they're trying to work at home and homeschool at the same time and keep their kids happy and settled. And I'm saying, look, there is a way to do this from a still centre that makes it much, much easier to cope with whatever the external pressures are. And that's part of what we live here in, in this religious community. And how long have you been a nun for? A lot longer than I care to think of. So very soon, actually next week, it's going to be 47 years. Oh, my goodness. I entered as a baby, of you course, understand. Of course. course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it's been a long, long time now. And actually religious life itself has changed hugely in that time. When I came to Cambridge for the first time in the late 1970s, I came up as an undergraduate. I'd already been a sister for three years. I was wearing full nun's habits, so I was wearing 17th century widow's costume. Yeah, we were quite a spectacle in the town, really. And has the way you reflect changed over time? Oh, yes, hugely. When I first entered, I did actually enter a very, very much more closed community than this one. There was a much bigger community. We were a community of 60 sisters, and there was a very, very measured timetable of the day. We knew exactly what we would be doing at any given time. And the rhythm of the day with regard to prayer and all of that was very much set. And it was great. It was a way of really rooting yourself in a in a rhythm and in a routine that you eventually internalise so that it just becomes part of who you are. But since then, I've been a missionary in South America in the slums of, of Rio. I've been a university chaplain both here in Cambridge and in London. I worked as a volunteer prison chaplain for 25 years. Until the lockdown, I was on a plane traveling somewhere around the world every couple of weeks. So I've had to take all of that internal quiet and internal discipline and adapt it to a life which externally has changed beyond all recognition. And Dancing at the Still Point by Gemma Simmons is published by Form. We're speaking on Bookmark today to Lucy Lewis about her memoir, Lighting the Fuse, about becoming the first female bomb disposal expert. Lucy, bomb disposal, I don't, you don't need me to tell you, uh, life or death situations uh, there. How do you deal with that? How do you cope with the possibility that you might die, actually on a daily basis? Well, when you first sort of set out, you need to kind of have a conversation with yourself about the risks you're prepared to accept. And once you've done that and you've then sort of made your peace with what you're going to do sort of for the next couple of years, 
then it's quite easy to be able to put that out of your mind because when you're actually working on a device of any type, you're very focused, you've got a lot to think about, there's all sorts of things to concentrate on. So you kind of put all of those sort of worries out of the way and focus on what you've got to do. The key problem areas really are the journey to the bomb, to the site, because you don't know quite what you're going to get there. So you can't really plan until you get there. And you can, you're left with your own thoughts on the journey. So I found the journey to the, the site the worst. And occasionally there'd be a sort of two o'clock in the morning bit of a wobble when you think, oh, that could have gone differently. You know, maybe if I hadn't done that or maybe if I'd done that, that might have worked differently. But they're fleeting moments, really, because you've, you've come to a decision about how you're going to deal with it right from the start. So, yes, I was able to put most of it out of my mind. Is it part of the training, dealing with... Uh, not, the, not the Royal Engineers bomb disposal training, no, it wasn't. Part of it is, it, it sort of seeped in because being in the army was dangerous anyway. And back in 1989, we were really targets for the Irish terrorists. And we were, the danger was ever-present. We couldn't go out in uniform. You had to hide the fact that you were in the military, even in the UK. There were lots of precautions. You can't park near any buildings. You don't open letters unless you know exactly where they're from. Lots of things. You took a lot of personal security and that was already sort of drummed into you. Long before I even joined the army, I realised it was a very dangerous, dangerous occupation. So the bomb disposal was just an extension of that, really. And did you ever have any moments where you were walking towards a bomb or any point at which you thought, this is it? Yeah, definitely. There was, um, if you like, an accident on when I was on a demolition range and I ended up being an awful lot closer to the bomb that I was blowing up than I should have been. It was a mistake with the type of bomb I was dealing with and it high-ordered, it exploded with its full force and so instead of being a little control explosion puff of smoke, there was a huge mushroom cloud and it was that split second when I thought, oh, something's gone wrong because there's no puff of smoke and then realised that I couldn't see the bomb or see anything because of this huge mushroom cloud and it was that sinking moment you think, ah. And it was a split second when I suddenly thought, this is not how I thought it would be. So just for that split second, it was a this could be it moment. And my heart just sort of sank. And then, then I was hit by the blast, the pressure wave from it. And it all was a bit different. But but yeah, it was a split second. You think, a split oh. second, but one you will remember for the rest oh. of your life. I mean, what kind of impact does that have on you? It just really made me super careful because it wasn't my mistake. It was somebody else's. But even in peacetime, things can go wrong. You have to be lucky. So even though you have done everything right, there's still that element of luck which means you could be lucky in the other way. I mean, I was lucky, to, you know, I wasn't badly hurt then, I just sort of lost my eardrums. But yeah, you can be lucky the other way. And we've all heard lots of stories about the wartime bomb disposal officers where the guy who, who discovered the very first sort of anti-handling device, he only discovered it when it, it fell out and it just sort of went off in his hand and it just sort of went fizz and he went, oh, I wonder what that is. And that was supposed to set the bomb off the minute he withdrew the fuse. So yet people have been lucky all the way through. And so there is that element, it, the, your luck could go your way. So even if you make a mistake, you could get lucky. And do you live with fear? I mean, if I was doing that kind of job, I'd be afraid all the time. But we're talking very logically about, about death and how you handle it. What about fear? Because that's not a logical thing. Fear's important. You need, you need adrenaline. You need, uh, there's, a, there's a saying in the army, if you're not scared, then you're not, you don't understand the situation. Kind of you rely on that fear. You don't suppress it, but you channel it. And certainly in bomb disposal, the fear is very concentrated. It's that moment when you're in range, when you're into target, it's there. You know, you walk away later after you've made it safe and it's all gone. So it's, it's sort of very strong but intense, but it disappears. Whereas serving in operations, be it Northern Ireland, be it Iraq, Afghanistan, that's all in the back of your mind all the time. It's a constant drip, drip thing. And I think that that's actually far more damaging than that intense 
what I'm doing now is very dangerous moment. It's that they can get me any time, any place that is, I think, more worrying. Well, let's take a break. Now, let's go to a nicer place. Let's go to Echo Beach, which is your second choice of music, Martha and the Muffins. Why this one? This reminds me of Bossington Beach, which is part of Porlock Bay in Somerset. I come from Somerset, where Exmoor meets the sea, and it's a beautiful beach. It's deserted, uh, it's calm, and it's my happy place. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. And we're speaking on Bookmark today to Lucy Lewis about her memoir, Lighting the Fuse, about being the first female bomb disposal expert in the UK. Uh, Lucy, as well as that, you also spent two years in Northern Ireland, which sounds in the book incredibly stressful. What were the effects of that on you? Yeah, it was very stressful. It's sort of taught me, well, there's a few things that have stayed with me. And it's partly through the bomb disposal side, maybe. And I've learned a few things that on the self-preservation side that I, I kind of continue to do. I still never follow the same routine. I still open letters and parcels standing up and never over a flat surface. Because def- if you're opening a parcel sitting down and it's a, bom- a letter bomb, then it will blow your legs off. So, I, you, you know, if you want your legs, you, you open a parcel standing up uh, and not over a flat surface like a table because that directs a blast into your face. So I still, and my kids tease me, still go and stand in the middle of the kitchen to open the post. And so there's a few sort of ingrained habits and I don't even realise I'm doing them. It's a bit like putting seatbelt on. You don't think about why you do it. You just do it when you get in the car. I mean, it sounded a tough two years. And a lot of the time in the army, that, as you describe it in the book, sounds tough. And I'm just wondering, your resilience and determination, which comes through as well, where, where does that come from? Well, for me, it came from before I joined the army for Operation Raleigh, where I, I sailed a tall ship around South America, up the Amazon, around the Caribbean. But I was seasick all the time. And you kind of, there's no option to get off. You just have to stick with it. So I think the resilience starts from there. And then Sandhurst, you can't get through Sandhurst unless you are utterly determined. So you have to be so committed to what you want to do and really want it badly in order to be able to survive Sandhurst. And you can't be put off by any small injury or little bits and pieces. You just have to keep going. So I think just getting through Sandhurst teaches you that determination and resilience. And the book's dedicated to the three bravest of women, my mother, my sister and my daughter. The women in your family, I and mean, your daughter wasn't around the period you're talking about, but they played a part as well in, in buoying you up. Absolutely. My mother's been rooting for me all the way through. And I was very conscious of the fact that she was never given the opportunity to do things. She wasn't allowed to go to university because they didn't give grants to women and they didn't see that educating women was was worthwhile. And she had to leave work when she got married. So, you know, she had no chance to do the things that I did. So I've always found sort of duty bound to make the most of all the opportunities that have come my way. And were you interested in women's rights before you went into the army? Or was it something that when you realised the inequality, it was, oh, I'm not having this? I didn't know. I I wasn't really aware at all. I did know that my mother, she was a physiotherapist, but she wasn't allowed to go to university because she was a woman. And I I did know that. And I remember thinking that that was very unfair. 
But I was brought up in a time when women did everything differently to men. We did home economics. The men, you know, the boys did, did woodwork. You know, it was all very different. The girls do this, the boys do that. And I just accepted that was the way it was. So it wasn't really until, I suppose, bomb disposal that I actually realised that actually, no, we can do an awful lot more and you must let us stop putting rules in our way that just say you can't just because you're a woman. And you also, I think, thank your mother for diaries and journals for encouraging that habit. Is that how you wrote the book, from memory and from the journals? Absolutely. She gave me a diary when I was 14. I've uh, written a diary every day since. So there's an awful lot of years. And I couldn't have written the book without those diaries. And it's only when I went through the diaries for a particular year that I realised I'd remembered all this stuff. I thought, I don't have any recollection of this, but it all came flooding back. So it's much easier for me to go back to that time and put myself back in the shoes that I was by using the diaries. And you've changed the names of some people. I have, mostly because I can't trace them. Most of the people, well, everyone who I've been able to trace has been only too happy to be named in it. But no, those that I haven't been able to track down, I've had to change the names. Thank you, Lucy. Well, uh, talking about books, I suppose we're going to talk slightly differently about books and hear from Nicholas Royal now. Nicholas is the author of seven novels, two novellas and three volumes of short fiction. He's a reader in creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan University and head judge of the Manchester Fiction Prize. White Spines, Confessions of a Book Collector, published earlier this year, details his passion for Picador books with their distinctive white spines, published from the 1970s to the end of the 1990s. Part memoir, part narrative non-fiction, the bookseller magazine, perhaps not surprisingly, made it their editor's choice. When I spoke to Nicholas, I asked him, when did his book collecting begin? It began, I suppose, in 1982, when I went to university and I'd seen a detail from a painting on the sleeve of a single by a band called Bauhaus. The single was called Dark Entries and there was a painting on the cover of it that I thought was incredible. It was by an artist called Paul Delvo and I went to see the painting. It was hanging in the Tate Gallery. That would have been in 1980 and then in 1982 I went to London to be a student at the University of London and I went to Scoob Books, a second-hand bookshop that is still there, although in different premises. They had this big wall of uh, white-spined books. I'd never seen so many books of a similar type shelved together before. I found they were all from the same publisher. They were all from Picador. And on the cover of one of those books was another painting by this same artist, Paul Delvo. And that book was Ice by Anna Kavan an English novelist and short story writer. I probably bought that book. And then Christmas 1983, my parents gave me another Picador book, which was an anthology of short stories called Black Water, edited by Alberto Manguel. Those were the first two Picadors that I had. And um, I started collecting them, I suppose, at that point, but without any deliberate intent. I carried on adding to my small but growing collection throughout the 90s. And then at some point in the, um, maybe the early 2000s, I must have said to myself, I seem to be collecting these books at the same time as collecting lots of other types of books. But I was aware that I could collect all of these books because although Picador is still publishing, in sort of 1999, 2000, they abandoned the commitment that they had had to a particular look. They'd had this uniform look. And so that's, the sort of end point of my collection. And I know that I don't have all of those books published between 1972 and when they started publishing. 
1999, 2000, when they stopped doing the white spines. But I've got most of them. I so, like not knowing which ones I don't have. <laughs> and how many do you have? I've got about a thousand. Wow. But that includes instances where the same book has been reissued with a new cover. So I will get both or I'll look out for both. It's, it's not like I go online and order them, but I, I'm always looking out for these books when I'm in secondhand bookshops and charity shops and so on. And where do you keep a thousand books? I live in a flat in Manchester and it is mainly books, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> There's not a lot of room for anything else. And what is it about the white spines? Can you can you identify okay. what it is that yeah, appeals to you? Yeah, there's something to do with the fact that I like things that look the same but are different. So they're almost the same. So from afar, you think you're looking at a giant collection of the same thing. But when you get closer, you can see that they have different spine widths. They have different author names on the spines and different titles. I do have this attraction to things that are the same but different. And I think it goes back to when I was a boy and I collected stamps. And the stamps that I liked best were those that are called definitive stamps. In the case of Royal Mail, those would be the ones that just have a profile of the Queen's head and then they change colour and the value changes. I like the fact that you look at all those different definitive stamps. You know, on first look, they're the same, but then you look closer and they're different. And do Picador know about you, know that you're collecting them and that you're loved for yeah. them? Yeah, they do. And they're, they're, they seem interested and uh, pleased, maybe a bit flattered. And they've got a 50th birthday coming up next year. And um, they've been in touch with me over that. And you see, I think I've got a bigger collection than they have. And they're interested in maybe bringing some more old Picador authors back into print. We've been talking about that. And when did you think there's a book in this or, you know, you can use this as a kind of springboard for writing about other things? That happened maybe about three or four years ago. I've been keeping records for longer than that, but not very much longer than that. When I say keeping records, I mean making a note of what book I buy from which shop, when. And then at some point I also started, I mean, I've been recording my dreams for many years. Some of my dreams about books and writers and writing are included in the book. And I have been collecting overheard conversations and snippets of conversations for about three or four years as well. The idea for the book started, I suppose, with the idea that it would just be about the story of trying to collect all the Picador books. And then I realised that there was more to it than that, or that there could be more to it than that. And so I ended up with this book that is partly about that, and partly my dreams about writing and books, and, and partly these overheard conversations, again, about books, and an awful lot about secondhand bookshops and the people you meet in them, the people who run them, charity shops, and about books themselves. And between all of this stuff in the book, there are odd little bits of memoir, autobiography, I suppose. But you could probably condense that element of the book down to, I don't know, 5,000 words, maybe. There's not an enormous amount of that. But all these things go together to make up a book. And really, it came together during the writing of the book, which took place mostly in spring of this year, when we couldn't do much else, after all. And you mentioned... Um secondhand bookshops there and charity shops where yeah. has this passion or obsession taken you well it's taken me all over the well as I say all over the country there have been some glaring 
gaps, places I haven't been. For instance, I'm sorry to say Cambridge. I go close to Cambridge, I go to Norwich, I go to Bedford. I mean, I'm guessing that Cambridge is kind of equidistant. It's probably in the middle. I'm full of bookshops. It's waiting for you. I know. know. Well, this is it. I really want to do a second volume, which depends on the success of the first volume. And in a second volume, I would make sure that I went to, well, I think Cambridge would be top of the list, actually. So I've certainly been to secondhand bookshops in Cambridge, but the last time I did that was about 15 years ago, long before I started keeping records of what I bought where. So although I could have written in vague terms about particular shops, I couldn't have written about buying a particular book in a particular shop in Cambridge. So that's something I look forward to. But there is a lot in the book about bookshops in the North and the Northwest and in London and in uh, Scotland. And out of all those books, all those thousands of books, what's your most prized book? And what's the book that you haven't got, but you would absolutely love? Within the Picador collection, my most prized one might be might be the second book that I got, Blackwater, by, edited by Alberto Manguel. I found another copy of that same book while I was writing White Spines, and I, I write about this in the book, in my local Oxfam. And in it was written an inscription from its former owner, or rather to its former owner, from someone who I realised I knew, a former near neighbour. It was dated Christmas 1983. Uh, I really love the fact that at least two copies of that book were given as Christmas presents at Christmas 1983. And I know the other person who gave that copy. And, you know, I'm guessing probably loads more copies were given that Christmas. And which one would I most like that I don't have? Well, the thing is, I don't know which ones I don't have. And I like not knowing because I can still every bookshop, every secondhand bookshop, every Oxfam that I go into I know there's the possibility that I might find a book for the collection. In recent weeks, I've found several, and I love that. It would kind of take the joy out of it if I had a list and I was ticking them off a list. That wouldn't give me the same joy that I get from not knowing whether whether or not I've completed the collection. It seems curious, given that that is my aim, but I, I almost don't want to know when it happens. And when you see one of those white spines in yeah. a, a charity shop or a bookshop, do you feel like you're rescuing it somehow when you, you buy it and bring it home? Occasionally I have had that thought, but I wonder if it's, if it's a slightly um, immodest thought because, you know, maybe I should leave it there for somebody else, especially if it's a book I've already got in a different edition, say. So, no, I don't think I'm rescuing it. Even if it sat there for another year or, or five years or ten years, it's still enriching the shop the collection of books that it's a part of, and it's still there as something that anybody might find their eye drawn to, their even their hand drawn to. But whenever I do see one of those white spines, I will take it down and have, well, no, I won't take down and have a look at every single one, but I do take down a lot of them and have a look at them, even if it's one I know I've got. And even if I see from the title and the author that it's one where I know I've got all the different editions, all the different covers, I will sometimes still take it down and have a look because I have become, in the last year or two, increasingly interested in the names that former owners will write in these books. Not all former owners do that, but some do. I love the sort of detective work that there can be in investigating these, the names of these owners. Sometimes you can do a little bit of detective work and find with a certain degree of certainty that this was that particular, I'm going to say... Brian Adams, and it's a name plucked from, I mean, I can't remember who, there was one 
book that I bought that had the name in it of an 80s pop star. And I guessed at the time it wasn't the 80s pop star, but someone with the same name. And there's a chapter in the book about that, actually, about authors with the same name as other authors. And White Spine's Confessions of a Book Collector by Nicholas Royal is published by Salt. Listening to that with me is Lucy Lewis. We've been talking to her today about her memoir, Lighting the Fuse, published by Trapeze. Lucy, you were saying that there were parts of what Nicholas was saying about the spines being the same but different that sort of reminded you of army life. Absolutely. And in theory, with the uniform, you all look the same, but we're all different inside and we're able to personalise just our, our berets. It's the only part of your uniform you can adjust. And we spend hours moulding and sculpting the beret to, to reflect our personality. And we take it very important. It's very important to be different. And we've been reflecting a lot on life in the army as it was for women in the 1980s and 90s. What's the situation like now? Very different now. All the roles in the army are open to women. Not necessarily all the jobs, but all the roles are. And we now have a new sort of generation of first women. So I've been lucky enough when I went to Santos to meet the woman who was being commissioned directly into an infantry regiment, into the rifles. And so she's only ever known complete parity with the men. And she's going to have a whole career in the infantry, which for me is, you know, coming back from when we weren't even allowed inside their barracks. It's amazing. But there are still some things that have not changed. The uniform's still designed for men. There's still not body armour that fits women. They make flat male body plates and put them in smaller vests. Boots still start at a size 7 and you have to sort of fight to get various things to fit you. So that sort of thing still remains. And the assumption that all soldiers are male is still there. But it's evolving. The army takes a while to evolve, but it is evolving and it's getting better all the time. Yes, I did see you tweet the other day that they had a bomb protection outfit for a dog but they still can't make them to fit women i know it's something that that i got quite excited about when we were in northern ireland so it's quite disappointing to find that they still haven't designed and the same with the uniforms they make male uniforms and they just take the trousers up a bit which means that the leg pocket is in the wrong place and it doesn't fit and they just basically made the arms and legs a little bit shorter and assume that that will work And what about writing? Are you planning on doing any more writing? Did you enjoy the experience? I did enjoy the experience, actually, and I got quite into it. But I realised that I can't write fiction um, because I have very little imagination. I can tell a story, but I need to have the plot. So at the moment, today, actually, I'm writing a speech and a sermon. So I'm still writing and I'm enjoying that. I don't know. I might... I'd be interested to write something else. All those diaries and journals, surely there's so much in there. There's about three books worth of content that didn't go in because this book is totally focused on the bomb disposal side of life. Certainly not about being at sea and not about the military police or any of the other parts of the army. So... um, or Cambridge for that matter. So, so yes, I've got a lot of content to write. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading Rules of Civility by Amos Towles. Really fascinating. It's set in 1937 New York and it's a fascinating story. I'm really enjoying it. I'm about halfway through now. Thank you, Lucy. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music. A bit of heads up. And then our next show, our featured guest is Dame Gillian Beer talking about her memoir, Stations Without Signs. We'll hear from Michelle Paver. She'll be chatting about Skin Taker, the latest in a Wolf Brothers series for young adults. And David Anand will be chatting about his novel, Peter Down. But we'll sign out now, Lucy, with your last choice of music, which is Joyride by Roxette. Why this one? Because I had bought a tax-free brand-new sports car in Germany because we were allowed to. You could drive it for fun on on the autobahns with no speed limits and still sell it for a profit when you got home two years later. And I remember listening to Roxette Joyride as my friend and I zoomed down the autobahns to go shopping in the American bases with the target top roof off my car as fast as it would possibly go listening to this. We arrived in the American base, sunburnt, windswept, but we had a wonderful day. Hello!